And now it's my great pleasure to introduce recurring guest, our friend, the speaker of the Colorado House of Representatives, Representative Alec Garnett of Denver. Hey guys, excited to be on, excited session's over, excited for the podcast. Well, first question, Mr. Speaker, are you going to resume Smart Alec now that you have no work to do? Uh, well, you know, the big reason that I had to take a smart Alec pause is because my producer, uh, the one and only Ethan, is now running your guys' show. So maybe there's a way that Ethan and I can uh, find some time to do kind of a side hustle and, and get it going again. Because there have been actually a couple people who have asked why it's not still going. Well, we'd be more than happy to lend him to you. They haven't figured out you're, you're kind of busy. Yeah, well, they like, they like getting the updates. They like getting the updates. Maybe Ethan can just take some of your, like, floor speeches and cut them together into, like, an Alec mega mix and just, like, make a podcast out of it. Like, you don't have to do anything. Like, the words are there. You know, if, if the listeners didn't like it, my parents probably would. So <laughs> let's talk about the, uh, the legislative session that just got done earlier this week. Um, wow. Yeah. I wrote a column at the beginning of session right before you all gaveled in that was called Colorado Democrats Must Go Big. Now I'm like, maybe that was bad <laughs> advice. <laughs> you guys, you did so much. Can you talk a little bit about like how on earth this session ended up being this productive or why? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's amazing how much uh, – a difference a year makes. You know, if you think about how we ended last session with cutting the budget $3.3 billion with the fact that we were, um, you know, really trying to react to a pandemic and, on, and an economic downturn just by with like the facts that we had. Um, and then you fast forward to this session, um, I really think this was a historic session. Not only did we um, step up and deliver on policy issues that we haven't been able to deliver on in years, uh, reducing people's health care costs, uh, transportation, but we also set up a state stimulus package that was uh, fueled by one-time dollars because our economy was doing better than it was um, than we thought it was going to be, and then we set up a way to spend the federal stimulus dollars that are going to really help Colorado build back stronger, and we're going to create, I think, transformational change um, in this once-in-a-generation opportunity. So I honestly think people are going to look back, I'm certainly going to look back and say 2021 was a year where we were organized, um, you know, we were uh, very focused as, a, as leadership and as Democratic caucuses. We knew that we had an opportunity with majorities and with the governor's office, and we decided to work together, and we decided to um, uh, just kind of move forward and get everything done in a way that I think Coloradans are really going to be proud of. And I think that one of the most important things to take away is that the voters should feel like we were as transparent with them as we possibly could have been. We ran on these issues last November. We then, uh, at the beginning of session, I had a long speech laying out exactly what I hoped to get accomplished this session. And looking back, we did all of that plus a little bit more. And so that's what, that's what the voters and the citizens of Colorado want. They want somebody to say, okay, elect me, and this is what we're going to do. And then right before the session starts, in a little bit more detail, say, all right, this is what we're going to accomplish in these 116 days. We didn't even go the full 120. And that's how you build up trust. That's what people expect from their elected officials. There were a lot of big bills passed. We'll get to most of them, I'm sure. What was the most satisfying for you personally, do you think? It's a really uh, it's a good question, Jason. I think, um, you know, the transportation uh, package was uh, sort of once-in-a-generation opportunity. 
Um, it's, I think it's hard for me to uh, articulate how much work was put into that. An issue, let me just explain the, the spectrum of stakeholders. You have people on the environmental side who are like, no more highways. Highways are adding to our greenhouse gas, gas emissions. They are tearing apart our neighborhoods. And on the other end, you have the business community that's saying, we don't want any multimodal. We don't want any funds going to anything except bridges and concrete. And so that's where we started. That's where the, the stakeholders started. And we got to a place where we were introducing this bill and no one was opposed. The business community was on board. For the most part, the environmental community was on board. Local governments, counties, Republicans, Democrats. The fact that we pulled that all together and got something done that we haven't been able to get done at the ballot or in the building over the last 10 years, I think is something that people are going to look back on and say was historic. I also worked um, with the marijuana industry and with parents who were concerned about high potency products, something that Ian and I talked about a long time ago. And we moved forward, I think, on a very common sense policy to cut down on loopholes that exist in the um, uh, exist in terms of 18-year-olds can buy 400 doses of the highest potency marijuana um, in the world. That's a lot. I, I think you also mis misunderstood Ian. He wanted higher potency marijuana <laughs> that was no, i was the i was going the other way on that one well i didn't say i didn't say that we agreed i just said that this is something that we had talked about a long time ago younger kids higher potency that was my proposal right that's right didn't didn't take but you know from a personal standpoint this is an issue i brought up uh, six years ago when i was a freshman and then the fact that 93 out of 100 legislators voted for the proposal I put forward and the industry was pretty much neutral and, and the parents were excited about the step forward. I mean, that, it, it took 300 hours of stakeholding. So personally, that meant a lot to me, uh, but it was not in anywhere near a highlight of this session because this session, um, you know, we, we put forward the, Col the Colorado option. We uh, put together the, uh, a bunch of uh, proposals to reduce uh, prescription drug costs. So the highlight reel is, is rich uh, when you look back on this session. So what are you going to do next year? Well, I mean, the, the, the thing that we know for sure will be uh, we have to spend um, a big chunk of the federal dollars that we got. Um, you know, we set up a listening tour to hear from Coloradans on how we should spend the $3.8 billion that we received. Um, there was uh, a lot of agreement that they wanted to see big issues that have stumped the legislature primarily due to cost uh, to be tackled. So transforming our mental and behavioral health systems, uh, making sure that we have more affordable housing. And then we wanted to sock away some money for future stimulus because right now there's a lot of money in the marketplace and we wanted to see where our economy was at in the fall going into next session. And we wanted to ask some economists where, you know, who else needs help, where, what other parts of the economy need uh, to be lifted up. And so we'll be able to make those decisions going into 2022. I think it's a prudent, uh, responsible way of going about it, but that's definitely what will frame at least the outset of the 2022 session. I wanted to ask you a little more about that transportation funding bill. You did roll it out with one of the more impressive coalitions of support I've, I've seen in a long time. Yet inside the building, Republicans still opposed it. Why? Except for one, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was bipartisan. It was bipartisan. You know, uh, I was joking with some Republicans the other day. They were like, "Can't, can't somebody find that guy a job somewhere?" And I'm like, "Absolutely not." <laughs> <laughs> you found a job for him right here in the Democratic caucus. <laughs> that's right. And, and with him, everything's bipartisan. And and, and those statistics are going to be rich with bipartisanship. So, um, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, 
You know, I think inside the building, it's pretty simple. There was one organization that was opposed, and that organization was Americans for Prosperity, an outside-the-state uh, Republican-run, Koch brother-funded organization um, that uh, is sort of the shadow of the, of the far right. And, and because they were opposed, everyone in the building feared actually coming forward and trying to solve the problem uh, because they would be primaried or they would be beaten up by AFP. And so, uh, unfortunately, that's kind of the world that we still live in, that uh, the Republican Party here inside the building um, isn't trying to govern on behalf of the people of Colorado. They're not trying to solve problems. They would much rather the Democrats step up and solve the problem, and then they want to protect their political right flank uh, so that they don't get picked off in a primary. So it's been like that for a while, but it was certainly... Transportation was the Republican issue for a decade, and the fact right. that Democrats took control over it and actually solved the problem, I think will be a stain on uh, the Republican uh, brand of governing for a very long time. It's kind of amazing. I mean, like, first of all, you should call them Americans for potholes in this specific debate only. <laughs> I like that. Second, um, that we talked about, I think Chris Santa came up with that a million years ago, and we talked about that back in the day. Um, but... It's funny how, like, they're in the smallest minority in the House in living memory. They're not, they don't have a path back to power in the Senate. I'm positive they won't be able to find a top-tier candidate to run against Polis. And yet, they fear this out-of-state, billionaire-funded special interest group who has led them essentially into the darkness here. Like, by listening to them, Which is they have ended right? up with all of these bad political realities. So maybe, just maybe, they should stop doing that. I'm not going to stop them, but free advice, y'all. Stop listening to the people who have led you into the wilderness. Agreed. Be facing an uphill battle early on was Senate Bill 200, which creates specific guidelines and metrics for greenhouse gas reduction. At one point, Governor Polis even threatened to veto the bill. How were you able to work out a deal here that, that made everybody happy? Um, that's a good question. I think, well, first of all, I think it, this is... This conversation is going to define why we were so successful uh, this session. Okay, this was the hardest. This was the hardest issue. You had the conservation community essentially choosing a path that they knew was going to lead them straight into a veto. They launched into. They they went head on into that fight. Then you had the governor going head on into uh, a public discussion about how he was going to veto Senate Bill 200. That was sort of all at the outset of the bill being introduced. And then things kind of calmed down publicly, but under the surface uh, was very hot, right? There's a lot of discussions inside the building about why would we move this forward if we know for a fact that the governor is going to veto it. And then some people were like, well, you just move it forward. We'll create all this pressure and the governor will sign it. And I'm like, listen, I know the governor really well. If he comes out and he says he's going to veto this bill, he is not going to not veto this bill. He's going to veto this bill. So, um, I don't know, about a month ago, I went downstairs and um, started uh, talking with the governor um, about the fact that, listen, there is stuff in 200 that we all agree on. Can't we, can't we start at least talking about that? Because no one had come to the table and started talking through the stuff inside Senate Bill 200 um, about reducing um, emissions and pollution and greenhouse gas and, and carbon from some of these big polluters and some of these big industries. And so they, they started uh, in earnest uh, uh, negotiating and it got to a place where they were able to finally find agreement on, I would say anywhere from 
the range of percentage of what was in 200 is different, but about 60% of what was in 200. That's what folks are saying outside the building is they got about two thirds of what they wanted. The, the environmental conservation, racial justice, environmental justice community all saying there's more work to do. We're going to keep having this conversation, but two out of three ain't bad, especially when you're talking about a policy as massive as this one. Yeah. And, and what it did is it, instead of picking a fight amongst each other, uh, Democrats, both in the house or the Senate or with the governor, we finally, uh, got to a point where we were talking and we got something done together. And the reason that we were so successful this session, reducing health care costs uh, in the environmental front, on voting rights, on transportation, on criminal justice, is due to the fact that we decided not to just like pick fights with each other and lose. We decided to get what we could done this year, understanding the moment that we had to work together. And that's one of the reasons we were so successful. And, that, and that's a good example, Senate Bill 200 into House Bill 1266. Um, when you look back on it, I think people are going to be really proud of how Colorado continues to lead in the climate change and environmental space. So we talked about some of the, the big headline-grabbing banner fights, and there were plenty of them this year. Anything you want to tell us about that kind of flew under the radar that you think was really important or really impactful that didn't quite rise to the level of some of these other huge fights? You know, the decision for us to um, use those one-time dollars to set up a state stimulus package, that was $800 million, um, uh, when we didn't know whether or not the federal government was going to come through with some state and local government relief, was really key. Because what we did is we were pr uh, prioritizing working families and small businesses and even rural Colorado and local governments. And we provided and we, and we propped up and we moved money into successful programs that um, just hadn't received that amount of funding before. I think there is going to be a legacy built here of us helping those most in need uh, kind of bridge uh, between where they were um, in the worst part of the pandemic to getting out of it and hopefully building back stronger than they, than they entered um, the downturn. And, and a lot of that was overshadowed because, you know, $800 million is an enormous amount of money for the state to invest. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff that was happening on the federal level that was overshadowing it. Um, but I do think that that didn't get enough attention, uh, but will go a long way to helping different regions of the state, um, you know, bounce back uh, and, and keep our economy uh, kind of recovering for a long time. You, you know you did good work when $800 million it gets uh, overlooked. Totally. <laughs> There was more. Uh, we, we were, you were talking earlier about the health care bill, what we've called the artist formerly known as the Colorado option because it changed quite a bit. The Colorado Sun reported more money was spent lobbying this bill than on anything else in recent memory. Did you feel that? I mean, was that obvious? Oh, yeah, because, you know, it started in the House. I really want to compliment um, Representative Roberts, Representative Judah in the House because – Essentially what happened is they, we decided, but they decided, and then I, was, I agreed, um, they wanted to stop and try to work through the issues um, before going uh, through committee and before coming out to the floor and before going to the Senate. And I actually think strategically it was a very, very smart decision. But the reason that I know how much money was spent lobbying against it is because I then inserted myself in all of the negotiations with the health insurance companies, with the doctors, with the, um, uh, with the hospitals, 
And uh, it was a very, very challenging set of negotiations. However, in the end, um, we kept saying, we are going to get this done. We are going to get this through. And the most important thing is, is that we save uh, Colorado's money on healthcare, that we increase their choice um, in the marketplace, and that that choice is more affordable. And the fact that um, uh, in the end, this option is going to be 15% uh, cheaper is, is phenomenal. It, it is something that I think every other state is going to look to. It's what we, it's what we hoped uh, the Affordable Care Act was going to eventually lead us to, even though that was kind of more focused on increasing coverage for more Americans. Um, and so we definitely felt it. Uh, there were definitely some moments where uh, I felt like the leverage was against us. Uh, but we persevered, and uh, Coloradans have been screaming at the legislature to re reduce people's health care costs for a long time, and we delivered on that in 2021. So you, you talked a little bit about the marijuana concentrates bill earlier. Obviously, you were in the middle of that fight. Um, every speaker, the ones I used, I've worked for and the several that have been in office since then, kind of has their own bills. People don't realize that, like, speaker brings their bills, too. They have to go to committee. They have to sit, go through the whole process. You can't just say, I'm the speaker. This goes to the governor's office. What Did you have, like, another issue besides the concentrates one that was, like, an Alec Garnett joint that you spent a lot of your own time working on? <laughs> no, pun, no pun intended. Yeah, no <laughs> Well, you know, one thing that I worked on with uh, Representative Sirota, which is, I think, something that's near and dear to my heart, Ian, I'm sure it's near and dear to your heart as well, and, and you too, Jason, because we all have kids, is because Proposition EE passed um, in 2020, um, we are going to have uh, hundreds of millions of dollars coming to the state to provide universal preschool uh, to, Col to Coloradans and to kiddos across the state. <clears throat> what I didn't realize, well, I, I guess I kind of realized it, but I didn't fully uh, appreciate was how bifurcated, cumbersome, and um, uh, burdensome it is on families to get access to the Colorado Preschool Program. There's six different funding sources for preschool that go through different agencies and departments on the, on the state level. How complicated it is to deliver uh, early childhood education to on the county level because of the state level. And so what we did is we, we have created a two-step process to establish a cabinet level um, agency department uh, of early childhood here on the state level, which I don't think any other state has done to streamline those dollars that are gonna be coming in because of Proposition EE and to simplify um, the other areas in state government that focus in on early childhood, put it all under one roof and make it more efficient and easier for families. And we all know the, the impact on the developing brain um, and, and getting those kiddos uh, access to high quality early childhood education earlier on. And so I, I think in 10 years, I'm gonna look back, or maybe if I'm lucky enough to be a grandpa, I'll look back and say, man, I, that was one thing that I worked on in its infancy that I was really proud of that didn't get a lot of attention. Right on, thank you. Yeah, and you know, preschool for our kid costs more than my freaking college tuition. So anything you can do to take those costs down is going to help a lot, man. Yeah, so expensive. It's more than, like, I pay more on a monthly basis than I do my mortgage. Yep. Which is pretty outrageous. Wow, where are you guys sending your kids to preschool? Why do I feel so inadequate now? <laughs> we, you know, we sent him where we could get him in in October of 2020. That's where we sent him. <laughs> yeah, that's another thing. I mean, you know, we moved $50 million of that state stimulus plan into um, essentially increasing access, getting more 
um, schools set up uh, because the demand is, was so high. And, it, it was, and it's, so, it's so tied to, you know, our economy being strong. I mean, if we look at, you know, the impact on women in particular um, during the, the economic downturn, when, when you don't have access to early childhood um, and, and parents have to stay home, it, it just has an impact on everybody, in particular women, and it has a devastating effect on the economy as well. We talked to you before the session about what it was like settling into the role of House Speaker. After you've gotten through your first session now, how do you feel about it? Are, are, were there anything that, any things that surprised you or you had, didn't expect? Uh, or was this kind of the long, hard work that you expected it would be? I had the benefit of working um, really closely with Casey uh, Becker, the former speaker, and so I got to see kind of firsthand uh, what went into it. Um, I don't think I realized until yesterday how stressed out I had been um, over the last month in particular. You don't know how heavy the gorilla on your chest is until he stands up. Yep, yep, totally. It was like I told Emily last night I was, I was exhausted, but this, the, the fact that I could just like be a dad and not worry about you know, what I would do normally is I would work all day, I would come home, I would try to put the kids to bed, and then I would sit on the phone till 10, and then I would work till midnight. And the fact that last night I could turn on Netflix and, like, watch some random show and not worry about what phone calls I had to be on or, um, you know, what emails I had to respond to uh, was pretty extraordinary. I, I do think that this, the speaker position is um, one of the hardest jobs in government. I think it's, it's, it's always been that way. I think it's, it's built that way. I think, in a way... Um, uh, somebody has to kind of carry that burden around uh, to keep uh, the train on the track for 120 days. I don't think I understood quite uh, the amount of stress that was going to come with that. However, uh, the, the thing that I liked most about it is I got to insert myself into all of these discussions, I, and I got to help fix or help make sure that all of these amazing proposals that my caucus members were bringing forward got across the finish line. So I hope you know, I hope my caucus members, um, you know, always saw me as, as somebody who would come in and help, um, you know, uh, help with the negotiation or, or they would come in and say, hey, I need you to call this stakeholder and, and tell them that this is as far as we can go or, or whatever it may be. And, and those were opportunities that um, I really enjoyed and relished. It brought me closer to the caucus, but it also made me feel like, um, you know, we were able to be uh, more successful this year. Well, I think the proof is there in the, in the results. Absolutely. Uh, I, I know you're the, you'll always be the last one to, to pat yourself on the back, but you, you deserve a lot of credit for this. I appreciate that. I talked about this a little bit earlier because you, you all did check quite a few things off the list here, but what is on the docket for next year? Have you begun thinking about that yet? Are there any, I mean, other unfinished issues and the ones or do you, you not want discussed? to think about that? <laughs> yeah, is it something you can even wrap your brain around right now? Yeah, I mean, I mean one thing that got almost no... Uh, uh, credit whatsoever, or no attention whatsoever, is the fact that the changes that we made to the school finance formula, you know, going back to the Smart Alec podcast and some of our discussions, the four of us uh, before, you know, we, we set up a school finance interim committee in 2017, I think, that had, uh, the bill had failed five years before that just to set up the committee to look at the formula. And um, this year, we, we took two big, very big bites out of um, that uh, challenge, and we fixed uh, middle-level equalization. 
which was one of the you know, biggest inequalities in the school finance formula in the last uh, 12 years. And then we made sure that more money was going to at-risk kids um, than before. And we're starting to gently move towards a more student-centered school finance formula instead of a district-focused school finance formula, which was, uh, hadn't really been changed since 1992. And those are historic movements um, towards making sure that the dollars are go the state dollars are going to the kiddos who need it most. If you're at risk, if you're an English language learner, if you're somebody with special needs, you should have more money in the classroom uh, to make sure that you have everything you need to be successful. And that's where almost every other state has gone. It's taken Colorado a really long time, uh, but we were able to make two important steps this year, and I do, I do think that you'll see us continuing uh, to make those uh, important steps into the future, so I would assume some of that happens in 2022. Well, congratulations on a landmark session. That was wild to watch. Um, take some time. Uh, Good luck and mazel tov on the arrival of your newest. And thank you so much for joining us here on the Get More Smarter podcast. Speaker of the House, Alec Garnett. Thanks so much, guys. It's always great to be on. And uh, we'll be on soon uh, thinking about whatever politics is happening or, or what's coming up on the docket next year. Uh, get some rest in the meantime. All right. See you guys.